We're looking at Ruth today, chapter 1. This is the only book of the Bible I have not preached an expository message from in being here since July, a year and a half ago, I guess 20 months ago. I like to preach from all the books of the Bible, and you've had a taste of each book except Ruth, and we don't want to remain ruthless. And uh, I put a little handout in the back of chiasm. Now you say, what is chiasm? Well, the handout will explain it to you, but Ruth is written in chiastic form. And what that means, and you don't see it in the English, unfortunately, but you see certain books of the Bible like Daniel where they build to a peak and then gradually wind down. It's called chiasm. And I put a little example from Ruth out in the lobby, and you can get that uh, as you leave today. Ruth in the Hebrew means friendship. It's a bridge book. It bridges the judges to the kings. <clears throat> Remember, the land was ruled by judges. One of the problems was that everyone was doing what's right in their own eyes. And then eventually Israel asked for a king, and they, they had a king already. It was God, but they wanted a king in flesh, and God finally gave in and said, okay, and they had Saul. And he had some good years, but uh, he wasn't always led of God. And uh, God wanted to lead him, but he wasn't willing to submit to God. And then, of course, we had great King David the greatest king Israel's ever had, and one day we'll have another king sit on that throne by the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Ruth was read annually during the harvest time. Actually, at the Feast of Pentecost, they'd read it out loud. Four other books were read annually, Lamentations, uh, Esther, uh, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. And we said Ruth's a bridge book. It it connects, uh, you know, anarchy to leadership. It connects idol worship to a king who was a man after God's own heart. So it connects these different eras. Ruth, as you know, was a Gentile, a Moabite. What's a Moabite? Remember, Lot was drunk and his daughter slept with him, incest, and Moab was the leader of the Moabite nation. So it's very sad to think about, but yet, you know, God still makes the best of everything, doesn't he? And uh, so she's a, she's a Gentile married, would marry a Hebrew, a mighty man, Boaz. The opposite of Esther, who was a Hebrew and would marry a Gentile. Uh, Ruth's listed in Matthew chapter 1, along with several other Gentiles we think about. Gentile women, Rahab the harlot. Again, we mention in the lineage of Christ. Think of that. Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Or he had a Moabite, a, a harlot, Tamar, who committed incest with Jacob, her father-in-law, Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba, who ended up with David. And uh, so here we have all these Gentile women. And of course, we know Ruth is a book of typology. Uh, she's the, the bride of, a type of the bride of Christ. Do you know the bride of Christ is made up of mostly Gentiles? Very few Jews are part of the church, right? One day Israel will be saved, but now very few Jews come to know the Lord Jesus. So we're going to read the first six verses of chapter 1. If you have that stand, we'll read these six verses. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn, Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And they, the name of the, of the man was... He, he, I gotta slow down. Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Euphrates of Bethlehem, Judah, and they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. 
and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpha, the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them, and the women were left, the women was left of her two sons and her husband. So here, Naomi's, I mean, Ruth lost everything. She just has these two daughter-in-laws. Let's pray. God bless. As we take a look in your book for a walk in the world. Help me to say exactly what you want me to say today. This is your house. We're your people. I'm your servant. This is your word. God, you know every heart here. You know every problem. You know every sin, every frustration, every amount of discouragement. You know. Lord, you know if there are people here who do not know Jesus. And I pray today, if that's the case, they'll realize their sinful ways and trust Jesus. Bless now, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We see historically in Ruth ten generations since Tamar's sin. Of course, that was part of the Old Testament curse of sin. Sin You'd have to wait ten generations for God to bless, and that's uh, interesting to study that aspect of the law. We see theologically the Goel Redeemer principle. Goel Redeemer means literally next of kin who redeems. They had a policy uh, in, in the law. God, God created the law and wrote the law to take care of widows. There were a lot of widows. And uh, so God had a plan to take care of them. If you had someone in your family that uh, wasn't married and a widow were out there who had lost her husband and they, they were related, the closest relative was responsible and expected to redeem them to buy them back, sometimes included back, buying back property and livestock, but they would buy back what was lost and buy back the woman and make her the wife of the family and take care of her for the rest of her life. And so we see this historically, we see this theological significance, and we see a practical, the practical significance, the providence of God. The providence of God in, 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 during a time of famine. God would use things like famine to move people and to manipulate situations. He's God and he can do whatever he wants. And he sent famine to the land of Israel. Now the time frame here is about 1,000 to 1,100 years before Christ. We're not sure of exactly during, exactly when during the time of the judges. Some believe uh, near the end. Some believe the beginning of the time of the judges is when this took place. But boy, I go too fast. Significant names are Yahweh found 17 times. The I Am of the Old Testament. El Shaddai, which is Almighty, is found twice. And Elohim, the plural name of God, is found three times. And we know the word El, while it's translated God, can apply to false gods. But Elohim is the name of our God, the plural name. Uh, and we find that way back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. But here God uses famine to move them. I remember as a boy growing up, I grew up in a place called Grand Haven, Michigan, right on the lake. And it was a beautiful area. Michigan, I tell people, and, and everyone knows this is from there, is like three different states. You have the Upper Peninsula, which is wild and wilderness. I mean, you have moose up there and 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 uh, buffalo and people as big about. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, moose and buffalo. That's a terrible joke. But we have we have a, a, a tribe of natives up there, and they'll, they'll kill buffalo once a year. And and we have moose, just wilderness wolves. Then the lower peninsula, you have like two states. You have the western side, which you have a lot of elk and a lot of farms and a lot of deer, and it's just country type. 
And in fact, in the middle of that's a town, Grand Rapids, which is kind of our Bible belt up there with all the bookstores, Calvin College, Bible uh, Baptist, not, it's called Grand Rapids Baptist, School of Bible Music, and all that up there. And then you have the eastern side from Lansing to Detroit, which is auto industry. In fact, if you see a Michigan license plate, it'll talk about clean water. That only applies to the western side. The eastern side has the dirtiest rivers, and they've tried to reroute the river to change the drinking water for a while, and everybody had contaminated water. And, and it's sad to see what's happened on that side of the state, but it's just like three different states. So my dad was working at a printing company, and the printing company went out of business. And there's reasons for that I don't need to get into. But my dad didn't have work. Now, we had a nice home, and we could walk two big sand dunes over to Lake Michigan. And we were in the really good part of the state. I mean, we really loved it there. We had a home. My dad built a big home. We had a boat. We had a camper. My dad had a nice car. And then he lost his job. And that meant selling the home, selling the boat, selling the camper, and uh, not quite enjoying life like we had once enjoyed it. In that, God moved our family. My dad found work. His brother had an insurance company. He said, I need a rep in Lansing. So he moved to Lansing. Now, let me just say this. Lansing has wonderful people, and God is sovereign, and in that, God really blessed. So I, I already talked about the western side, but there's some wonderful people and wonderful churches there. We were kind of discouraged, my mom especially, leaving that side of the state and going to Lansing. And uh, we found a home, and it wasn't quite like the home near the lake, but God blessed us, and we realized years later God's sovereignty in that. You see, we were reared Christian Reformed, five-point Calvinist. I'm not picking on them. I'm not attacking them. They love the Lord. But we were reared in a Christian Reformed church. And my dad was constantly a witness for the Lord. And one of his Christian Reformed said, Bob, you're casting your pearls before swine. Those people aren't chosen. You're wasting your time giving the gospel out to these people. And boy, that just tore my dad up. He didn't like that, you know. He wanted to witness. And we always struggled with um, the, the, the doctrine of a limited atonement that God only died for the elect. You know, you read John, 1 John 2, 2, it says God died for the sins of the whole world. So my dad struggled with that doctrine. And we were just really struggling. And my dad in the insurance business wasn't doing real well either. It was hard to learn a new trade to sell insurance after you've been in the printing business. And uh, a, a guy knocked on our door, and a guy had invited us to his church, First Baptist Church of Okemos, and he had talked to my dad about church, and my dad and mom were believers. But my dad said, well, we don't like the local church here of our denomination. Let's go to this Baptist church. Well, here I am today, you know. And so we were there, and all seven of us kids were baptized there. We tr I trusted the Lord at 12 years old. My mom and dad were immersed, and from that point on, we went to Baptist churches. That was the first, and we ended up years later in a big Baptist church where they had a great youth group. So that was our experience. But you see, it took a loss of a job, a famine, so to speak, to move our family, and for God's divine intervention. None of us were happy to move. I'm not kidding. You asked my siblings. My mom was just devastated at the move from that area. My mom grew up in that area. My dad did. We didn't like having to move, but we ended up loving the people of Lansing because we found great people and great churches, and that was life-changing for us, especially for me. I, my brothers would all say especially for them as well, but I take, I just thank God, you know, for difficult times that forced our family to move. 
Now here is Naomi. She's in Moab, 50 to 100 mile journey, mostly about 60, 70 miles by foot from Moab to Bethlehem. She's there. Her husband has died. Her two sons have died. And she's thinking, wow, God has really given me a bad turn. You know, I've had a bad time in life. And we'll learn later, she actually got so bitter, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter, Mara. We're not going to talk about that today. But she is there with her two daughter-in-laws. And uh, what a difficult situation. But she's a type of the church. Why? She's not Ruth. Is Ruth's a type of the church. Why? Because Ruth was a Gentile who would be redeemed and married to a Jew. And we know that Boaz is a type of the great kinsman redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ, that would also marry us, a Gentile. And so here she's a Jew marrying a Gentile king, the opposite of Esther. I mean, Esther was a Jew marrying a Gentile king. Ruth's the opposite. She She's a Gentile, and she would... She would marry Boaz, where Esther, a Hebrew, would marry a, 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 a Gentile. And so Boaz is a type of the king's kingsman redeemership, excuse me. But through this Leverite marriage, which Leverite marriage is a marriage meaning a surviving brother, well, a brother would marry a surviving widow when his brother died. He'd marry or take her into his family. That was the law. And we know that uh, Boaz would be the kinsman redeemer who would buy Ruth. And he also is a forefather of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great type. Because Jesus would be the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Some say in the very same fields where Ruth gleaned, there may have been, uh, may have been the same fields where the shepherds announced the birth of Jesus. Some say Boaz and Ruth's hometown was the same as, as David's hometown, Bethlehem. And of course, Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. All these things are interesting. Um, I find interesting as well that Naomi loves Ruth, her daughter-in-law, so much. And we'll talk about that love later in the next chapters. But she loves this daughter-in-law so much, and she wants for her son's wife to be taken in to Israel. And so she's not concerned about having someone redeem her. She couldn't have kids anymore. She's concerned about someone redeeming her daughter-in-law, this Moabite, Ruth. She loved her that much. And she could have said, let's go find the closest redeemer and demand by law that he redeems you. But, but Naomi didn't do that. She said to Ruth, go lay at the feet of Boaz. She knew Boaz was a mighty man of wealth, but I think more than that, Boaz was a man of God. And we don't really know whether she's scheming like Jacob schemed and Jacob's mother schemed to get the birthright and blessing and all that, but she certainly was influential in Ruth's life to say, go lay at his feet. So when he wakes up in the morning, you're laying there submitting to him. That's fascinating to me that she would be involved to that degree. We'll talk about that more later. But I think about all the typology here. Naomi is a type of Israel displaced. Israel was scattered from 722 through 586, scattered all over. Some returned, but then Rome drove them all over the world. And as you know, Jews were dispersed to 104 nations. She's a type of that. She was sent, her husband led her, but she was in Moab, away from her homeland. And in that, she lost her land. She lost all connection with Israel. 
And when she came back, great thing, the great thing is Boaz went and bought that land, redeemed that land for her again. And you know, one day the Jews are going to come back and they're going to own more than that little sliver of land they own today. They're going to own it all. From the Euphrates to the Mediterranean, from the river of Egypt up into Lebanon. They're going to own it all because God gave to them. And one day their kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, will get that land all back for the Jew. And that's the type here. Naomi is a type of Israel being displaced and receiving back their estate. Boaz, as you know, is a type of the kinsman redeemer and a relative of Naomi's son. And so he would then redeem uh, Naomi's son's wife, Ruth. Ruth's a type of the Gentile church brought in, you know. The Bible talks about us as being aliens. We're not part of the covenant. We're not part of Israel. As aliens, God has grafted us and brought us into the family. And, and that's what we find that Ruth is, as, as one brought in. She was a slave who was set free. How did she live? Well, Naomi said, the only thing we can do is we can go in the fields like the poor do and serve and we can get some handfuls of grain that fall. And we call those handfuls on purpose. Because Boaz looked out and said, who are those people? Those servants out there, drop some for them on purpose. And that's a type of God, isn't it? The kinsman redeemer. Did you know the Lord provides for the people of the world even when they're not saved? They don't even realize. The Bible said the goodness of God, the goodness of God will lead men to repentance. Did you know that? The goodness of God will lead men to repentance. It's not just brokenness that brings people to God. It's also His goodness. And here we know that that Ruth and Naomi would notice the goodness of God, the goodness of Boaz, who's a type of God. And so she's a slave set free, and she's a stranger brought in. You know, I love that. And you know, as I said a moment ago, we're aliens. We weren't part. And thank God for Jesus, amen, who brought us into the family, redeemed us. Did you know I was a slave to sin? You were as well. You sinned because it was natural for you to sin because you're a sinner. You're the natural man. And you couldn't shake sin. Some people tell me, I couldn't get rid of this. I couldn't shake this. I had this sin problem. I couldn't get rid of it until Jesus saved me. But he'll take that slavery away. And so he will save us and he'll take us as aliens and graft us into the family. Here's a Moabite. The Moabites were considered terrible people. God saved her. Saved her. What a type of the church. And I'm so glad that as an alien I was brought into God's family. In chapter 1, we'll see three things here. In verses 1 through 9, we're looking at today bread to bake. Then we'll look at a journey to take and choices to make in chapter 1. First of all, in verse 1, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Now you know the time frame. There's a famine. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem means house of bread. Judah means praise. And we know where God guides, God provides. So here it's a great place, but we know that a famine came to the land. Sometimes God moves us out of our comfort zone. And things like that are often alarming to us as we see God do things and just move us 
or change something in our lives. And sometimes we don't like it, but we have to come to the, the acceptance of it and say this has to be a God thing. And that's when spiritual maturity is revealed in your life. Can you handle change? I've met people in my Christian experience that have lost a job, and because of that, they never could cope. They're bitter for the rest of their life about losing their job or losing a promotion or losing a child. And that's a tragic thing to lose a child. And when you're mature enough to come to the place in your life to say, I have to accept this is God's sovereign plan. I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but I have to accept it. That tells you where you are in your Christian walk. Can you accept things that are laid upon your lap and you really don't want to accept them? Can you accept the changes like that? And sometimes they're difficult. Of course, the prosperity gospel says, if you're saved, you know, and I've said this a hundred times, you're healthy, wealthy, and wise, everything's going to be great, you won't have any more problems. That is such a lie. How many of you can carry a cross right now? Go ahead, be honest now. No one carries a cross. Maybe you have a problem in your, and you just keep them up so we don't single you out. Uh, but maybe you have a problem in your marriage or maybe finances or with your health or with children or grandchildren or work or a neighbor. You know, hey, the truth is we all have a cross to carry. And we'd all love to lay the cross down and have this great life without any problems, but then we wouldn't be what we ought to be. The trials in our lives make us what we are. Without difficulty in my life, I wouldn't be able to preach this message today. Everything was just great. Years ago, someone came up to me and said, everything's great in your life. I really envy your life. I said, you don't know anything. (laughs) You know, everything's not great. And sometimes we have a famine in our lives. It may not be the lack of food. It may be, but it may be a famine uh, along some other lines. You, you may have this problem with an in-law, you know. They say that the real punishment for bigamy is having more than one mother-in-law. I mean, there's no doubt that, that sometimes we have in-laws who are difficult. Sometimes maybe your family, some of them become outlaws, you know. Uh, but but we have trials and tribulations, and we don't always understand it, but we have to understand that God is still in control. God was in control of the famine. I've, I've heard this preached so many ways, I always want to give both sides of the story. I've had people say this, and I've heard it preached this way, that Naomi and Elimelech, that's a, that's a mouthful when I'm going so fast, were out of God's will in going to Moab. And I heard that preached, and I've heard a lot of people say amen. While that may be true and I may be wrong, I see the sovereign hand of God in that. That famine and drove them to Moab so we would have Ruth, you see. Ruth's the lineage of Jesus Christ. Christ came from her loins in Moab down through the centuries. So we wouldn't have Ruth. And of course, I've always said we'd be ruthless. You know, that's a bad joke. But you understand, without them going to Moab. So I don't know that they were out of God's will. I know in God's sovereign plan, he placed them and moved them. So I have to say, wait a minute. Circumstances. Circumstances drove them to find bread because the house of bread had dried up. Why was there a famine anyway? Because the children of Israel were were always in sin and God was always chastening them. And here God had these events take place which I believe are sovereign. 
There's always a definite link between the sovereignty of God and the actions of man. There's always a link. Even when we make mistakes, even though we're stupid, dumb sheep, what does God do? He overrides it and somehow works it out. I don't understand. Did God need Jacob's help to scheme? Jacob and his mother schemed to steal the birthright and the blessing. Did God need that? No, but he utilized it, used it. In fact, in God's foreknowledge, he knows all the mistakes we'll ever make. And somehow, he still rules and reigns. You know, Somehow, those mistakes. I've met people and I've heard stories that have always like, you know, got me, and I thought, I can't believe that story. When you hear a story about a lady that's a prostitute, and her child ends up being a preacher, you're like, what? That's unbelievable. Do you know what? We are what we are by the grace of God. If it weren't for God, we'd all be on the streets. We'd be under a bridge. We'd be selling ourselves. We'd be doing anything for a fix. Let me tell you something. You're not where you are because of you. You are where you are because of God. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. You're not so good and special that God favors you and he ditches the rest of the world. No, God is gracious and merciful. I love that about God because he's been that way with me. He's gracious. He's merciful. So here they are now. Naomi's here, and she's in the mountains of Moab, 3,000 feet above sea level, a long ways from home. Moab was cursed to the 10th generation because Balak and Balaam. A Moabite couldn't even enter the house of God because of the law. And she's got two Moabite daughters. And in verse 2, it names these. Elimelech means my God is king. Naomi literally means pleasant. She wanted her name changed because she wasn't pleasant after some experiences with God, but she would be straightened out eventually. The two sons, Malon meant sickly, and Chilion meant wasteful in verse 2. Euphrates is another name for Bethel. We know Bethel means house of El, house of God. Great experiences at Bethel, and this is right nearby. And I've said this before. God doesn't just bring us to church for us to fulfill everything uh, in our calling to serve Him. This is not the end of your ministry. Well, I serve at church, Pastor. I'm an usher, I teach, or whatever. I sing in the choir. Great. But it doesn't end with the walls of this church. Ministry begins here. It ends out there. Did you know where you are living? You are a neighbor in that neighborhood for a reason. You know, you are working where you're working for a reason. You're volunteering where you're volunteering for a reason. There's a reason for you being right where you are. And it's not just for your own satisfaction. It's for you to live for God. Don't stay in the house of God and say, well, I'm faithful to church and I've learned about Jesus and I know all the secrets of the Word of God and I'm just so happy, me, myself, and I, to be content in God's house. No. No. This is where you come to be fed. This is where you come to worship, to sing, to read Scripture, to praise the Lord, to give, to do whatever we're supposed to do here. This is this. There's no doubt 
this is important. The church is clearly established in the New Testament. The local New Testament church is clearly biblical. But this is only a launching pad. We're supposed to launch out into the world and go into the highways and hedges and compel sinners to come into the house of God. This week, I pray, God, please help us to have someone in our church who's lost, they can hear the gospel and be saved. That's my passion. I'm not, my gift's not evangelism. I wish it were sometimes. My gift is teaching, but I love to see sinners come to be saved. And the only way that sinners are going to be saved is for us to compel them to come to God's house. So ministry begins here, doesn't end here. Someone said, I remember the good old days. You know, I can think of times in my life, church experiences. I remember three of them that I just really loved. And someone says, ah, the good old days. And I say, let's make the good old days right now, right here. So that a generation grows up and says, I remember Anchor of Hope. I remember we would go to church and we would love to sing and we'd praise the Lord and we would hear the word and we'd go out, we'd share with our neighbors. Oh, I want those days in my life. Let's make those days now by being what we ought to be for God. And so in verse 3, Elimelech dies. And here is Naomi alone. What do you think she's thinking? Do you think she's thinking, well, I'll go back to the Holy Land and Ruth will marry this rich guy Boaz and she'll be in the lineage of Christ? No. In fact, she'll never live to see Ruth in the lineage of Christ. She'll never know in her life that Jesus would be from the loins of Boaz and Ruth. She'll never see that. And some of you want to see everything in your life come to... come to. You, i got about five ways I want to say this. You want to see everything beautiful in your time. The Bible said everything's beautiful in his time. You want to live. Abraham journeyed for a city and never found that city. He looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. He looked for the new Jerusalem. He never found it. He journeyed and he journeyed and he journeyed and he journeyed and he traveled and he traveled and he was a pilgrim. And that's what we're doing. We don't get to see the city yet, but one day we'll see it. We don't see the result of of things we've done in this life, but one day we will. One day we'll be in paradise. One day we'll be with him and we'll understand, we'll have the mind of Christ and we'll think, wow, now I know why that happened. And we'll finally accept those difficulties in our life as being of God. And if we can mature and grow now and realize right now that these things in our life are already of God, and even though I don't understand and I just don't like it sometimes, God has a plan. I was telling you about my wife's trouble, and my wife, my wife's, my wife's trouble is me, my son's trouble in South Dakota, and, uh, and how that there's some difficulty and he had to move out of his house and how that was so tragic and, and I told you that the next day I went to work, we had prayed, and, and there was $30,000 in money orders laying on the floor of our office. Somebody dropped in the slot for him to relocate, and since then another 10000 has come in. And I think, you know, I didn't tell these people. He didn't tell these people. God told them. So when we look at an experience and say, well, that's bad, now he's the pastor of a church in a little town called Manderson. Jeremy's never said I've been called to preach. Took him years to even be ordained. He sort of gradually found himself as a pastor 
in the ministry, and he never in his life ever expected that. He went to serve the natives and be part of a camp ministry. Now he's a pastor. He's been ordained. And he didn't understand how losing his home and all this stuff happened. He was able to see in his lifetime the good in that. He'll never see the good in the financial loss because he invested so many thousands in that house he had built. And sometimes we live our lives and we think, when's the good going to come? And it may not come in your lifetime, but trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. You may not understand what you're going through, but God has a plan and you've got to trust Him. I mean, our world right now, our country, we see the spirit of Antichrist abound. Never thought I'd see it in Washington and, and on TV, but we see it everywhere now. It's scary to see what's going on in our world. Everything's upside down. The Bible says in the last days, good will be called evil and evil will be called good. We see all this stuff happening and we pray for our country. We don't understand why, God, why? What happened to that generation? You remember the generation, you don't remember, you weren't here, but the, the Great Depression people and the World War II people that worked so hard to make this country easy for us. Now we've lost sight of hard work. 48% of Americans, from what I understand, are getting money they didn't work for. Wow, what's going on? I meet people all the time that are working very hard to get a disability check. I'll see people on TV say, I got in a wreck and I got a check and now I'm happy. What was the check for? It was for disability. Disability, they're jumping up and down in the advertisements. And I'm like, what's going on in our world? We don't have any conviction about hard work anymore. My Bible still says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't. Don't say that about children. Don't twist it, media. The world will twist Scripture. This is a man. When a man is healthy and able-bodied, he ought to be working. Not trying to get a check. I rent prop, rented property. I only rent one now. And I had this one duplex I was renting, and I was there the day they were moving out, and thank the Lord they were moving out. It's one of those deals, you know. Uh, landlords praise the Lord a lot more than everyone else. And they were moving out, and I heard the guy say to his wife, tell that guy to move the truck all the way up to the door so no one sees me loading this furniture, I'll lose my disability check. And you thought, isn't that typical of our world today? And yet our Bible teaches the work ethic. Naomi and Ruth, they're going to go back, and they're going to work hard. Here's Naomi wondering what's happened. And in verse 4, Orpha, whose name means neck, looked back. And I'm almost done. Just be patient. She looked back. Some liken her to Lot's wife who looked back and wanted to go back to the world. And that's a good application. However, it does say that Ruth and Naomi said to them, God's been good to you and he'll continue to be good to you. His kindness will abound in your life. But Naomi's sons both die. I'm going to turn for, to Deuteronomy 4.27. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 27. I've rambled and we're almost out of time. I'm not the rambling man, but I do ramble sometimes. Luke 28, I mean Deuteronomy 28.62 and Deuteronomy 4.27. I'm going to read 4.27 then 28.62. And I love this because here it says in, in chapter 4 verse 27, and the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. In chapter 28, verse 62, it says here, 28:62, another verse to read. It says here, And ye shall be left few in number 
Whereas you were as the stars of the heaven for multitude, because thou wouldst not obey the voice of the Lord God. You were a big nation, but you're going to be few because of your disobedience. What happened at the Holocaust? What happened with Russia? What's happened to the Jews over the years? Killed and scattered. And here's Naomi, a type of that. And she says to her daughter-in-law three times, go back, go back, go back in verse 8. Three times tells him to go back. First of three times, she says, go back. And one daughter-in-law looked back. You know, don't look back to the world. You say, well, when I was lost, I had more money. When I was lost, I had this and I had that. Don't look back. You're looking at the temporal. Keep your, keep your eyes on the eternal perspective. Because trials make you a better person. And look ahead because God has a plan. So the three in verse, verse seven, they start back. And Naomi says in verse eight to Ruth, stay with your people. But she assures him of something I love here. In verse nine, we, we don't have time, but in verse nine, the Bible says they wept together. They lifted up their, their, their heads and they wept. I'm back in Ruth now. Chapter one, verse nine. I love this in verse nine. The Lord grant you that you may, you may find us each of you in the new house of your husband. Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voice. That's an idiom to say they wept out loud. They were sobbing to say goodbye because the one daughter-in-law is going to go back. But in verse, verse eight, I love what Naomi says. And Naomi said in her two daughter-in-laws, go and return each. Go, go back to your families. And she said, the Lord deal kindly with you. That word kindly is a great word. And you've heard me mention this in the last 20 months, two or three times. I've got to mention it again. This is a great Hebrew word. Chesed is how you say it. And you don't need to worry about that. It's translated in your Bible, kindness and also loving kindness. It's the covenant love of God that never lets go. You know where you find it? You find it in God loving Nineveh. Jonah said, I knew you're this kind of God that you'd love these people till they were saved. And I hate these people. And they got saved. But what did Jonah know? God was a God of loving kindness. I love it in the life of Hosea and Gomer. Gomer was selling herself as a prostitute. And he loved her so much, he went and paid full price to buy her back. That's a type of God loving us, of Christ loving the church, of a man's love for his wife. That love that won't let go. I love that. And that's the word here. God's going to love you. Evidently, these two girls had trusted Yahweh. And God's going to love you, and He's never going to let go of you. You can go back to Moab, and it's going to be okay. And Orpha went back, and I don't know why. It probably was to look back to her old life and what she wanted back there. But Ruth said, I'm going with you. And I love that as well. But I think of God's Chesed is loving kindness for us. And you know what? He loved me that much to save me. He's never let go. There's been times I could have been in jail. I'm not talking about visiting prisoners. I'm talking about greeting the visitors that were visiting the prisoners. I had a good friend that was a police officer, Dan Pirtle. He's, he's not a believer. But he would get a hold of me once in a while and tell me, you better straighten out. And I remember being in his house some t- one time with a friend. I was so sick from a night of doing the wrong thing. And he said, you got what you deserved. You know, it's not an accident that I was friends with a police officer. 
It's not an accident that I had a dad that would whip me when he caught me. It's not an accident I had a youth pastor drive by one time when I'm going into Coral Gables or club, and the youth pastor said, hey, Dan. My dad has just become a deacon, and I'm in line going into a bar. It's not an accident. Hey, Dan. Oh, my word, the youth guy. That ruined that night. What a jerk to ruin my night of fun. God is in control. And sometimes he whips us. And sometimes there's a famine in the land. And I don't know the answers, but I can tell you if you trust in God, it'll be okay. Because he is king of kings, lord of lords, lord of this country, this church, and lord of your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I don't know what's going on in the lives of these people. But as their under-shepherd, I can just ask you as my shepherd to deal with us as a church, as a flock. Guide us, Lord. If there's anyone here who's not a Christian, that they'll come today and trust Jesus as Savior. Our altar's open for any reason, Lord. I just pray if anyone needs to come for any reason, to be saved, to pray, join our church to just say, I, I need help, I need prayer, that they'll come. But Lord, most important is that the Word has been preached and the seeds in our hearts help us to carry this message from You with us during the week. Bless now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.